Welcome to the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast series, which can be heard on VHHA.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get podcasts. We're also on the radio each Saturday at noon and Sunday at 10 a.m. on 100.5 FM, 92.7 FM, 107.7 FM, and 820 AM across Central Virginia, and Wednesdays at 1 p.m. on 93.9 FM in Richmond. Please send any questions, comments, or feedback to PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. Again, that's PCFpodcast at VHHA.com. And today we're thrilled to be joined by Dr. Cleveland Francis, a trailblazing African-American physician who's affiliated with the Innova Health System and an accomplished professional musician with several hit songs to his credit. He's with us for a conversation about his career in medicine and music and more. And with that, welcome to the program, Dr. Francis. Julian, I'm very happy to be here. Very honored to be on your program. Well, the honor is ours, sir, because you are quite an accomplished individual. And so let's jump into your life story here. We like to do our research about guests to help prepare for each episode. And each of our guests is unique and interesting in their own way. And we hope that we do their stories justice in the limited time we have with them. With that said, in reading up on you, Dr. Francis, the path you've taken through life is really quite fascinating. So let's start with your upbringing in small town Louisiana in the 1940s and 50s during a time of government-sanctioned racial segregation. I wonder if you could tell us about your family upbringing and some of your recollections about those very fraught times in this nation's history. Uh, glad to. I was born in Jennings, Louisiana, which is in southwest Louisiana. We were in complete segregation at that time. My parents were basically domestic workers, and I was, I'm one of six children, the, the only boy in the family. I had five sisters. And, you know, we, we had a really nice life coming up in Jennings. You know, we, we lived in the black community. We were educated there and racial segregation or Jim Crow was what it was at that time. And you've credited your teachers and your neighbors and particularly your mother with instilling in you a sense of self-worth and a spirit of determination, even while you and people who look like you endured the indignity of being treated as inferior by many in your own community. Despite not having access to a complete education herself, I understand that your mother made sure your family prioritized learning. She also saved up to purchase your first guitar. I wonder if you could tell me about your mother and the broader support structure that really helped nurture your development. Yeah, my mother was adopted herself and, you know, she was quite young, but she was feisty. She really knew the value of education and what it would mean for her six children. She insisted that we get educated. So she was always at the school checking on our grades and just giving us a sense of internal worth that we would become something in life if we got educated. It didn't matter where we, that we wore torn clothes as long as they were clean. And she was remarkable in that sense and really is responsible for me and all my five sisters being fully educated and professionals at this time. And then also, I understand that she, it took her quite some time to save up to get you your first guitar. Tell me about that. My mother detected an interest in music in me when I was real young and I was making guitars out of cigar boxes and window screen wiring. So she saved quarters from her work as a maid for about a year to make a down payment on a small silver tone guitar, a Susan Roebuck, and made me promise that although I would learn to play the guitar, but my studies, she insisted if that fell, the guitar was going in the attic. So I really credit her with getting me started very early with music, writing, and playing the guitar. And are you primarily or entirely self-taught on the guitar? Self-taught on the guitar. 
know, I taught myself chords and I was writing songs when I was a teenager. Some I would record later on, you know, in, when I was in graduate school, but I was singing back then. I had a sister who sang quite well and we used to sing in church. We had a small group singing at local churches around Jennings. So I want to get back to music in a second, but at the introduction of this podcast, we did mention that you've managed to have impressive success in two different professions, music and medicine, despite facing serious obstacles. In relation to medicine, I've read that you were one of very few African-American students when you attended William & Mary, and later the same thing when you attended medical school at what is now VCU. And then upon completing your education, you faced difficulty in actually finding employment in medicine that you're white peers did not. So you ultimately started your own practice. I think history is always instructive, especially in the current moment in time that we're living in now, where some of the ongoing racial legacy issues and the racial reckoning that's happening. So I wonder if you could just tell us about your experience. And as you think back about that experience, how does that shape the way that you view some of the things that we're going through in society in the present moment? Well, that, that's a lot to cover. It's my whole life right there. Uh, but I I went to a segregated high school and, you know, got a segregated ed- education. And I went to a historically black college, Southern University in Baton Rouge. That sort of gave me some time to get myself together. I decided to go into medicine. I applied to 12 medical schools when I left Southern. I got turned on by all 12. Ended up going to graduate school at the College of William & Mary. I was going to work on a PhD. I was probably the first black biology graduate student at the College of William & Mary. And then after graduating from there, I ended up going to the Medical College of Virginia, which we now call VCU. And I was one of two blacks in the class. And that school had not been integrated very uh, much since the Civil War. And I became the vice president of my class in medical school, and I ended up going to GW, becoming the first cardiology fellow in uh, their cardiac program. And I admit, when I did finish, I tried to get a job, you know, with doctors that I'd been working with, and they just weren't hiring anybody. And I decided, you know, in that instance, that uh, going back to my mother's lessons, you know, you might do well to start your own practice. And I did just that. I started a multi-racial, multicultural practice in Northern Virginia, and we became the second largest all-cardiology practice in Northern Virginia until we sold our practice to the Nova Health System in 2015. So I tell a lot of young people, you know, you may have to create your own space. I mean, if you're black or you're underprivileged, you're discriminated against, sometimes you have to create your own path, and that's what I was lucky to do. And it does seem that ultimately, in your case, hard work and talent won out, as you mentioned, having gone on to a successful career as a cardiologist in private practice in Northern Virginia, and then moving into the hospital setting. As I understand it, you were the first African-American cardiologist at ANOVA. But amid all that, you also kept a foot in music by performing locally in your free time as your clinical career was prospering. So if you would, tell me how you go from performing on the side... (laughs) to being an artist who achieved having multiple albums and multiple charting singles on the country music charts and someone who's toured internationally. How does that happen when you've got an active medical practice and then you find yourself moving into a career in music? Well, I tell people just by the grace of God. I was always interested in in music, 
you know, from a child. And I kept doing it, but my goal really was to become educated. I did not go around looking for music contracts and making tapes and knocking on record companies' doors. My mother had a saying that, you know, opportunity will present itself. If you're ready for it, you're ready for it. If you're not, you're not. But I happened to be treating a patient with a heart attack in my hospital at Mount Vernon Hospital in Alexandria. And it was on a Friday. I was I happened to be on call and it just luck would have it. I was on call that day and a guy came in with a very serious heart attack. I treated him and his brother, who came from Florida to visit him, his only brother, was also a, was a professional musician. And we got to talking about music, you know, and he said, well, bring me a tape of some of the stuff you've done. So I brought him a tape and I didn't think anything of it. He took it to Miami and gave it to a guy by the name of Jack Gale, who was president of Playback Records. And, and I got a call in my office on this guy saying, you know, I really like this music and <laughs> ended up collaborating with this guy. We headed off to Nashville to record a, a little cassette called Last Call for Love. And we recorded a song called Love Light, which is the B-side of Glenn Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy. And that got on CMT as a video. And I was in heavy rotation with Garth Brooks and Vince Gill. And so the president of Capitol Records saw this when he came in from playing golf one and he sent people out to look for me. So I got a call in my office and invited me to Nashville. So I went there and, and that's where he offered me a, a record contract on Capitol Records. And I was quite taken aback by that and didn't know what to do about that. But I did decide I would uh, take a sabbatical and do that since I'd already established a practice. I'd been practicing for 15 years. I had partners. The community was well taken care of. And so I went on this three-year journey around the world and and had a great time, made some great records and videos, and finally uh, came back in 1995 and resumed my practice in cardiology. At this point, you're semi-retired, but I, I gather still consulting. Are you still playing music as well? I, I know obviously there's been some interruptions because of the pandemic, but are you still performing? Right. I, I perform locally at a place called the Birchmere, which is a kind of a national uh, venue in Alexandria here. I have retired from patient care, but I am the uh, diversity, equity, inclusion advisor for the in Noble Heart and Vascular Institute and the chair of the committee on, on the equity, education, and outreach. So I'm still working, but I'm now administratively doing some things that I really feel strongly about on a social level. Tell me a little bit more about that work. What does that entail? Well, we're recruiting, looking for other minority providers, namely uh, cardiologists, nurses at our hospital, we also involved in patient education, equity education. We're looking into things like implicit bias and structural racism. If it exists at our institution, we're trying to uh, combat that. I'm also a member of the Inclusion Committee, which involves all the various ethnic levels, racial levels at our hospital. So we're making sure that we here at ANOVA have a great balance and that we're not openly offending people. And, you know, it's fair. It's a good exchange. So they think that with the background that I've had, that I'm very suited for this position. Certainly sounds like you are. Sticking on music here for a moment more, you've been featured in Rolling Stone magazine. You're recognized in the music section of the African-American Museum of History and Culture in Washington, D.C. You've also no doubt helped countless patients during your career. As you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? 
Well, I'm proud that I followed my mother's advice, <laughs> you know, and I stuck to being educated. I, I tell kids who come to me all the time, say, you know what, I can sing or people bring their kids to me and say they're really good. I said, you know, get an education. Your choices are enormous. And this, the music business is pretty much of a gamble. You know, I, I got as far as I got without even trying, but some people try all their lives to get a record deal or, to, you know, to play the Grand Ole Opry or to, and uh, this came, and a lot of it is, is luck and chance. But once you're educated, I mean, you control the destiny. I tell people from a song that I'm, I've been trying to write for a while, I said, though the story's already written, you can change the ending if you try. If you try real hard, you can change the ending. And, and I think that's what me and my family did. We were just poor kids and destined to become domestic workers. And we changed our ending with uh, being educated. Certainly good advice. I also read a quote from you that you have said you don't necessarily consider your music to be country, even though it's been defined that way. And it, it seems to me that you reject this notion of being confined to one thing or the other, to being a musician or to being a medical practitioner. Tell me, if you would, just about that philosophy, about not limiting yourself or not being confined to being placed in a box. Yeah, I grew up in Louisiana where, if you know anything about Louisiana, people, music and food is our, <laughs> that's our export. You know, we, we live on that. I grew up around uh, people playing banjos, harmonica, blues guitars, and I elected to, to do folk music initially, but gospel music, jazz, and blues. And to me, I, I was enriched by all of this. So I could, at, at one point, I was into folk music. I do that quite well. I also sang blues. I was just gifted by God with multiple talents. So I could sing country and folk is pretty close together. I could sing that and enough to that somebody recognized that I could sing it professionally, but also did R&B and pop in small clubs in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I, I, would, I would have preferred to be on a label, but coming off the label gave me a lot of freedom at the Birchmere. I do folk, blues, jazz. I have a 12-piece band. We do all of this stuff, you know, and it, it, the audience is very broad. That's what I like. Everybody's invited, so it's not just country music or gospel or blues. It's everything. So I've, I've done a if people would go to YouTube and look up Clee Francis music, I've got about 70 recordings there. And so I've done every kind of music you can name. I, I'm passionate about all of it. We do, Dr. Francis, really appreciate your time today. Before we let you go, we have two more quick questions for you to close us out. We're going to give you the choice. We have a list of 10 mystery questions. You can pick two numbers between 1 and 10, and we will ask you the corresponding question from that list of questions. So if you would, give me two numbers between 1 and 10. I'll take 2 and 9. Okay. Two, and this is a question that's uh, well-suited for you, uh, given your, your musical skill. If you were stranded on a deserted island, 
What one book, one album, and one movie would you take with you to keep yourself company? We will spot you a copy of the religious text of your choice. So other than that, what are your three entertainment survival kit picks? Wow. Um, I would need a Bible. You're going to give me that, right? We are going to spot you that. I probably would, would have a copy of an album, a, a CD that we did, you know, called Live at the Birchmere. Craig Francis and Friends Live at the Birchmere. And we did all of the music that we liked from all different genres. So I, I like that. I probably would take, the, 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 there's a new book out now that's called All Roads Lead to the Birchmere, and it covers all of the iconic musicians that have come to the Birchmere over the years, Johnny Cash, uh, Vince Gill, all this stuff. And I would probably read that because I haven't uh, gotten through that book yet, so I would take that book. To close us out, if you were miraculously granted one wish, what would you wish for? I would wish to start my life all over again, and I would probably do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the, 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 the gift of youth, understandable. As, 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 as someone, uh, someone who is uh, progressing through middle age, I certainly can, can relate to that. Well, yeah, I have a better idea because I know the few mistakes that I made, I would probably not make them, but I, would, I wouldn't change drastically. I would go in the same direction because I've really enjoyed my life. I really have. And I hope I've helped other people, and they've certainly helped me. Well, it certainly sounds like you have. And we want to thank you for being with us today and sparing a few moments of your time. And with that, that's going to bring us to the close of another episode of the Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association's Patients Come First podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe so you know when new episodes are available. And we want to once again thank our guest, Dr. Cleveland Francis, for joining us today. So thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much.